0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March the 23rd, 2022. Um, Over the last few months, we've talked a lot about war, not just the war in Ukraine, which of course is taking all the attention uh, in February and March but also a looming, potentially looming civil war in America with racial or racist overtones. We had a couple of particularly, I thought, interesting shows on that uh, at the turn of the year, one with the Canadian writer Stephen Marsh, um, who's actually pretty pessimistic, I think, about um, civil war in America. He has a new book out, America's Next Civil War. He actually believes that that civil war is broken out I'm not sure he believes if the war itself is between black and white, but there is certainly a racial element in his analysis. The other book that came out was with the San Diego-based political scientist Barbara Walter uh, about the possibility of civil war in America. Her book, How Civil Wars Start, is a more analytical uh, book, less polemical, less anecdotal. She's cautiously optimistic uh partially as she explained to me because the demographic in america is changing and that's what makes barbara walter optimistic about the future of the country Uh, before we begin today our conversation i i want to show a clip from the walter conversation before we talk about uh the changing demographics the majority minority uh, equation in America. So let's just look at what Barbara said, and then we'll come to today's show. And you make it clear that your mother, I think, came from Switzerland, your husband was from Canada, and that at one point you were even thinking of leaving the country. But you're a believer. And for you, ultimately, perhaps in contrast with somebody like Stephen Marsh, who, as it happens, it lives in Canada, uh you're staying and you're fighting against civil war. Is that
1: fair? Yes, it is. So the United States is going to be the first majority white country in the world to transition to majority non-white. But it's going to happen in Canada. It's going to happen in New Zealand. It's going to happen in the UK. It's going to happen with all the majority white European countries by about... 2100. So the United States, I think, has this opportunity to lead the world, to show it how we can transition from uh, what had once been an, an ethnically or a relatively ethnically homogeneous country to a multi-ethnic country and still maintain democracy and still economically thrive, and in fact, come out better as a result. So I'm committed to that ideal. I really do believe we will be better. I live in California. California is already minority white and it has thrived as a minority white um, state. And, and I really, really do wanna be here to help um, help America with that transition.
0: So America is transitioning from majority white to minority white. And my guest today, appropriately enough, he's talking to me from Los Angeles, although I think he's based on the uh, West Coast mostly, uh, sorry, on the East Coast. Uh, He has a new book out, Majority Minority, Justin Guest, uh, who I think, like Barbara Walter, is cautiously optimistic about this shifting demographic. But Justin Uh, I don't wanna put words into your mouth. Do you share Barbara Walters optimism about America leading the world to majority minority white societies by the end of the uh, 21st century? Thanks for
2: having me on Andrew. Um, I think that we're at a crossroads. I think that whether we can be this paragon of coexistence and adaptation really depends on how our governing institutions, how our leaders, how their rhetoric responds to this historical moment. Uh, And so much of of my book, Majority Minority, really is about anticipating that milestone and its politics uh, to better understand what other countries have done uh, to actually cope with great demographic change so that we can learn from their mistakes, from their successes, and learn how we can pivot closer to coexistence in the future.
0: Right. So like Barbara Walter, your your book is quite analytical. You had a a New York Times piece out uh, late last year about what the majority-minority shift really means for America. Um, And in contrast with a journalist like Stephen Marsh, you look at a number of other societies that have gone through this shift, and you suggest that some of these models um, we should, we Americans, should try to emulate, others we should be cautious of. Uh, Describe to me, um, Justin, the six societies you chose and why you chose them. Sure. I mean, in the time that we have together, it's going to
2: necessitate that I'm very brief, but uh, I I looked at six different uh, societies. So there's Singapore and Bahrain, uh, which are non-democracies that have engaged in some degree of suppression of of minority groups. Uh, I look at Trinidad and Tobago and Mauritius, uh, which are democracies but have heavily racialized politics and are consumed by ethnic tension and religious tension. And then I look at Hawaii and New York. And of course, many of your viewers uh, will recognize these as US states today, but Hawaii actually was its own independent sovereign country uh, before it was forcibly annexed by the United States and was a majority minority country at the time. And New York, even though it obviously has always been part of the United States uh, since um, the, the creation of the United States, um new york actually controlled its immigration laws in a sovereign manner uh, up until 1882 and so i look at these societies um across and try to understand what they have in common in in terms of how human nature responds to great demographic change and displacement uh but i also look at the differences uh to better understand what pivots some towards
0: conflict and others towards uh, coexistence justin um Uh, apologies for being a bit of a a sort of an annoying relativist here, but in our age where we're obsessed with racial divisions, um, don't all societies go through this, whether it's race or religion or language? Is there anything unique about what we're going
2: through? Well, you know, so many observers, Andrew, I think are squarely focused on prejudice and and racism uh, and basically believe that we cannot move and progress towards coexistence, until we can actually eradicate racism and prejudice. Um, But I don't think we can wait. I I think that, you know, across these six societies, the ones that do better, the ones that do worse, prejudice is present across
0: all of them. And so it's not just prejudice. Let me rephrase the question. What I mean is that throughout human history, we've always had others, whether they're religious or geographical, um, or sexual, and, and we're never going to be able to get away from that, are we? No, we aren't. And, and basically, if we're going to
2: make progress, social progress, it's going to be on that turf, on the, with the challenges, confronting the challenges of bigotry, racism, you know, sexism, whatever it is, uh, homophobia. It's going to be on that turf. So we can't wait for those things to go away before actually tackling demographic change and its politics.
0: Let's just look at the numbers very briefly. You, you lay these out pretty well. Uh, you write in your New York Times piece, in 2015, uh, the Census Bureau published a report projecting that by 2044, uh, the U.S. white majority would become a white plurality. Is that the key date, 2044? Obviously, they can't be exact, but is that when everything changes? That's what the U.S. Census Bureau has, has projected. Um, But, you know, we shouldn't
2: be complicating that further. You know, so many observers accept that milestone as as finite and as as definitive. Um, But in reality, actually, it is heavily dependent not only on demographic changes like fertility rates or immigration flows. It's also dependent on identity. It's dependent on people who contemporarily conceive of themselves as white and identify as white to continue to do so in the future. And, it, and, it, and it's also contingent on minorities con- continuing to perceive themselves as different from America's, quote unquote, white mainstream. And there are indications that they may that may not endure. So one of the things I point out in the book and also in my New York Times essay is that, in fact, actually, Americans who were construed as white have changed over the course of American history. Uh, people who were not construed as white in the past are now considered white today, such as Italians or the Irish, um, who may have been recognized as white ethnics, but were not welcomed into the white mainstream. That's also true of Jews and Greeks and Slavs who were subject to social exclusion and, uh, and prejudice and discrimination over the, uh, over the last uh, century and a half. And so that may happen again, where we broaden the understanding of whiteness, in which case more people will identify as white in the future who never would have done so in the 1990s or or today. And of course, that will complicate that milestone and
0: postpone it uh, ever after. It's always more complicated because race is, as so many guests have told us, uh, a construction But I wonder how much has really changed. We've done so many shows on racial violence in America, the history of racial violence, obviously the Civil War and then post-Civil War did a show last month with J.D. Dickey on the tour, what we call the, in headlining it, the tormented rise of abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. And then last year I did a show with David Paul Kuhn, the hard hat riot about the rise of white nationalism in America. You've done a lot of work on this. You have uh, books on the new minority, white working class politics in an age of immigration, the white working class, what everyone needs to know. How much has really changed since, um, since uh, Andrew Jackson's America and the, the anger of many white working class farmers to uh, African-Americans?
2: Well, in many ways, you know, what's so complicated about our contemporary moment is that the intersectionality of U.S. identities is just, you know, expanded multifold, you know, in so many different directions. You
0: use that naughty word, Justin. Intersectionality. What does that mean? That's a controversial word. So what I mean by that is
2: that our identities are crisscrossing. So people self-identify in ways related to race or ethnicity, but also religion, sexuality, profession, class and education, geography. And all of these are different forms of identities that have political meaning uh, in the United States today. And so it's not simply a black-white dynamic. And, you know, if we were to look at the black-white dynamic, you know, over the history of the United States, what we have seen is that immigrants continually trying to push closer and closer to the white mainstream in order to avoid the social exclusion and systemic discrimination against black people in the United States historically. And of course, it's hard to blame them when faced with these kinds of social incentives. And so when we have seen whiteness change over the centuries, it has usually been at the expense of people who are black or others who are deemed too different to be assimilable, such as what were called Asiatics or Asians, uh, what we now call Asian Americans today. Uh, or Latinos in the past. Um, but it's precisely those groups, you know, Latinos in particular, um, who often also identify as white. Sixty percent of U.S.-born Latinos self-identify as white on census forms. And so, you know, with those kinds of demographic changes, that complicates the black-white di- uh, dialectic in U.S.
0: I don't want complication, though, Justin. I want something simple. You had an interesting piece on CNN about how Latinos are turning to the Republican Party. Surprise, surprise. I mean, in this age where whites become a minority, um, politics could conceivably become so much more complicated that it's neither here nor there, is it? I mean, what, what, so what?
2: Yeah, look, uh, complexity is, is never uh, in the interest of clear communication or understanding, right? But I think that the key takeaway here is that U.S. identity has always evolved over time. All national identities have, but especially one as complicated and diverse as the United States. And so to think of it as something monolithic, to think of it as something that is static in nature, uh, is just doesn't rhyme with history or reason. And so, you know, I think that when we look into the future, we shouldn't assume that our demography and our identities and the, and the various boundaries between Americans are going to stay the same. Uh, They're constantly being blurred. And that's actually a good thing because it prevents fear mongering politicians and others who are trying to profit on division and prejudice from actually uh, from creating more exclusion and from reinforcing those divisions. So we want to facilitate ways that we can cross boundaries and build bridges between each other. And those because those are precisely the sort of connective tissue that prevents, you know, this purported
0: civil war that's off into the future that I personally don't think is going to happen anytime soon. I think I probably agree with you on the Civil War, but I'm less optimistic. You talk about this perhaps post-racial future in, a, in an optimistic way, but we live in an age, Justin, you know this, you teach in the university better than I do, where particularly the educated class seems obsessed with identity, whether it's racial identity or sexual identity or gendered identity. So if anything, in the 21st century, as America, as you suggest, becomes more complex, which it is, we're simplifying our sense of the self, aren't we, when it comes to uh, particularly racial identities? Worse than that. We're
2: actually competing in many ways for vulnerability. It's like the vulnerability
0: Olympics in many ways. And, you know, there's such a concern with demonstrating... I love that one, just. I've never heard that. The vulnerability, you mean the more... The more vulnerable you are, the, the more chance you have of getting a gold medal. Well, look, this
2: isn't the, unlike the Olympics, it's not a productive kind of competition. <laughs> you know, it spirals out of, out, you know, out of, out of control. Uh, and it's not a good thing because what happens is people aren't listening to one another when they share their struggles, when they share those vulnerabilities, because everyone feels some way vulnerable. And when we have this, this Olympic like competition between us, it actually makes people feel
0: unheard, unlistened, unacknowledged. And that's bad and everyone's for- complaining at the same time, everyone's boasting about the injustices done to their peoples, whether it's African-Americans or white or Hispanic. So in the end, no one's listening to what, what anyone else is saying. That's right. And, and, and listening is so key, you know,
2: when you're trying to build bridges across diverse societies. And there are many, many components and, and, and initiatives and programs in the United States uh, and structures in the United States that actually facilitate listening, that facilitate commonality between us, and that's true for so many other countries. You can think of sports and music and other forms of culture, like art. Oh, I'm from England, Justin. Sports never united us. you <laughs> course, have been to an English football match. Of course, it does. Absolutely, and 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 the diversity of the Premiership right now is is a wonderful strength, you know. And and that's the same thing that's true, you know, in the United States. It, it gives you an understanding of the team, right? Uh, and the U.S. is a team. You know, we are a team, just like every nation is. And so to the yeah, extent... Yeah, but now, I,
0: I, I we're going to take a break, Justin, but now you're beginning to sound like uh, some cheerful analyst on CNN, America as a team. You know as well as I do, it's not a team. It never has been and probably never will be. No,
2: I think I think that nationalism is something that we have failed to actually leverage for progressive purposes. And I'm happy to talk more about that after the break.
0: Well, let's take a break and then we'll talk about Justin Guest's vision of a, of a, of a just, uh, excuse, the, uh, excuse the pun, a just American civic national identity. He is my guest, two puns in, in a space of a sentence. We'll be back in 60 seconds then with Justin Guest, the author of Majority Minority, figuring out how we can get beyond race in America and behave and believe in the team. We'll see you in 60 seconds. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keen On show. The first of course is by in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio only podcast, you can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or Castbox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, In terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page. So, whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keynote. We're back with Justin Guest, the author of a brand new book, Majority Minority, about how a a multiracial America, America where whites are not the majority, can actually be a successful America, a team America. Justin, uh, in the first half of the show, we laid out the problems, and just before the break, you you insisted that there is a fix for this. So how are we going to do it? How are we going to turn America from a divided place into a team sport? Sure. Well,
2: first off, we don't want to be too Pollyannish about all this. And of course, I don't want to appear like some sort of messianic messenger with, the, with the, the prescription for the future. But we can certainly talk about what has worked elsewhere. And one of the things that I think the left and progressives and multiculturalists have denied themselves over the last you know, 50 years of diversification is the power of nationalism. It has become the exclusive domain of the right, when in fact it's such a powerful motivator, mobilizer of people of, of, of sentiment and solidarity uh, that really I think that you know leftist uh, universalist ideals and and the pursuit of this sort of kumbaya world that we're talking about um, really has not tapped properly. And in many ways, that's the source of, of, of my optimism is that we haven't really even tried to overcome this great social challenge that we're talking about, Andrew. Um, and I think that only if we do, and fail, then we can start to talk about being pessimistic. But you first have to give it a shot.
0: Well, and you're quite uh, historically minded, uh, Justin. I mean, obviously, when Tocqueville came to the country, he saw the potential for a civic religion rooted in democracy. And there have been presidents in the past. I know you have quite a high regard for Teddy Roosevelt, who you thought was a pioneer of a civic nationalism what would you make then of, of Tocqueville's analysis of democracy in America or Teddy Roosevelt's attempt to build a, a civic nationalism? Sure. Well, we should clarify, of course, that in Tocqueville's
2: time, you know, much of America was excluded from its association. Yeah,
0: we, we know that, Justin. And even,
2: even, even non-scholars know that one. And and even Roosevelt was a eugenicist, right? So the irony is not lost upon me, right? But yeah. um, but, but no, but Roosevelt was a fierce nationalist. And in the diversifying America that he governed, that he led, there was a sense of fear about whiteness being expanded to Italians and other Catholics, to Slavs, to Jews, uh, to Middle Easterners, to Asiatics in the time. And that fear you know, also consumed Roosevelt, who was concerned with drawing sharp lines and promoting what he concerned uh, call, uh, considered uh, the, the progress in the civilized world. Uh, and 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 in the free world, and so his solution was very much a civic nationalism, a civic identity that united people across these different races uh, in order to actually solidify its survival in the future. But you don't hear the logic of national survival when people discuss immigration and demographic change. What you often hear about is humanitarianism. You know, you often hear about sort of the commoditization of immigrants and foreigners about how much they can contribute to societies. And I don't mean to dispel you know, those ideas. Of course, immigrants and, and diverse peoples can contribute enormously to our society. And of course, there are many humanitarian cases, very vulnerable people who arrive as refugees, et cetera. However, that's no way to sell demographic change to the broader public who is skeptical, you know, who are concerned with their own struggles. The way to sell it is that they are part of a national project Uh, a, a a nation's fight for survival, much in the way that Roosevelt framed the settlement of the
0: frontier. How would you find a model for this? I mean, Russian nationalists might be listening to that and saying, oh, that's exactly what Putin is doing or what Modi is doing in India or what Orban is doing in Hungary. How do you do this in a way that is not exclusionary and violent and racist? Yeah, you you focus on the civic. You focus on the
2: United States as a project, not as a race. You know, so much of our nationalism heretofore have been like the nationalism of a Modi, uh, which is you know virulently Hindu nationalist, uh, uh, like like a uh, um, uh, Erdogan, which is or Trump. Hypocrisy. I mean, or do we, we we even have a domestic example. example. Absolutely, absolutely, or Orban for that matter. Right, um, the hypocrisy of of Orbanista uh, uh, you know, views towards immigration has been laid bare by the Ukrainian refugee crisis, you know, whereas just, you know, five years ago, uh, he was building, you know, fences, uh, and, and, you know, with, uh, uh, in order to keep out Syrians and Afghans, you know, he's now throwing the gates open, proverbially, uh, uh, to Ukrainian refugees by virtue of their whiteness and and their orthodox backgrounds. And so, you know, we have to, you know, buck this idea uh, of an ethno-racial, ethno-religious nationalism and find pathways to actually unite a country on civic terms. And, you know, the United States has the actual fodder to do this, It's a country that has been a country of immigrants from its inception. It's a country that has been crossing boundaries and blurring boundaries forever. And it continues. Oh, just in the last decade, the U.S. Census reports that mixed race individuals or those who report themselves as being of mixed race background have grown threefold in just 10 years. It's incredible. Um, We also have a concept of an American dream, of American possibilities in a way that is completely distinct from any other country in the world. And so threading the needle between being both inclusive but also somehow distinct is really possible in this country, but we have not really tried very hard to do so. And certainly
0: politicians on the left have barely given it an effort. Well, I'm not sure if that's true. What about Barack Obama or Bill Clinton? Surely they are uh pioneers of that kind of of civic nationalism you know in many
2: ways obama is so inspiring because what was so radical about his rise during the 2008 campaign uh was that he actually demonstrated real empathy for white working-class people who he was very keen to actually attract and recruit uh from the rust belt from those key swing states in those days
0: yeah the hard head
2: the hard hat guys right who who, absolutely the hard, the hard hat Democrats, right? Hard hat Americans. Um, The the folks that Joe Biden has always claimed to have a special relationship with Uh, the folks who swung in favor of Donald Trump in 2016, which I've obviously studied uh, quite extensively. And, you know, Obama's empathy for this group of people was radical. You know, he actually recognized their vulnerability. He acknowledged their struggle and their sense of marginality and didn't scold them and try to compare their marginality uh, to those of African-Americans, who, who of course, he so represented. No, he actually tried to unite them in in a common struggle. And he tried to actually bind them together in an American a desire for progress, and that was radical. But the Democratic Party has not followed in his footsteps. In many ways, I think that's what made people like Biden and Obama so uniquely successful and has made the rest of the left in the United
0: States so struggling. I think you're the first and last person to ever associate extreme success and Joe Biden in the same sentence. What has Biden done with any degree of success in this area, Justin?
2: You know, you have to give Joe Biden some credit. You
0: know, the fact that he actually
2: hinged his campaign on the unification of the country, that he called out our polarization and sought to deal with it. Well, anyone (laughs) can do that. I mean, so what? Well, I think this is what's next for him. I think this is the challenge for this White House they have an opportunity unlike any other before them to really hinge their legacy on unifying the country. And perhaps Russia, you know, the conflict in Ukraine is an opportunity to leverage this nationalism that I've been crowing about here uh, in his favor, you know, but we have to see the, the, the walk
0: following the talk. And that's uh, uh, Justin, uh, I tend to be in your camp, but wouldn't it be fair to say that listening to you is like listening to a party political broadcast is that you are a, a coastal uh, globalizing elite who see America as a kind of uh, smaller version of the world. Uh, But that is a a highly politicized view, which many whites and perhaps non-whites simply disagree with. And they will find themselves in the Republican Party. So what you're doing is articulating a universal message, which is essentially a progressive one, which not everyone's going to get on board with and we will divide rather than unite. Maybe I'm
2: guilty of some of that, but I think you're guilty of creating a monolith out of white working class people in the United States. You know, many are so keen on their own immigrant journey to this country, so rec- you know, so cognizant of the contributions of immigrants and people of diverse backgrounds to their lives. You know, I think that there is a lot more empathy there, and I think there's a lot more interest in actually social cohesion and togetherness and coexistence than we give them credit for. And so I think that we have inflamed these politics by creating these sorts of stereotypes and, and, and broad brushing of people in the United States, rather than, as you say earlier, complicating this, you know, and really recognizing that everyone in the United States understands struggle and everyone understands dreams.
0: Justin, I wonder whether we need to change the language of politics itself and our relationship with the state as a Cambridge University professor of history, Gary Gersel, he has a new book out on the end of the age of neoliberalism. He's going to be on the show next week. He suggests in his book and in his work that there is a kind of neoliberalism of the left and a neoliberalism of the right. And even if these people don't necessarily think they are in the same camp, they are. Um, and that this obsession with deregulation has resulted in a, in a society rooted in crisis Are there other ways of thinking about your vision, perhaps strengthening the state or rethinking the very idea of government and civic engagement? Well, for one thing, I think that we put far too
2: much emphasis on the power of one particular leader, in this case, Biden or whoever follows him, uh, on actually unifying the entire country. I think that we don't need one leader to do this. We need a million leaders. I think that in order to actually have success here in confronting this demographic change and its politics, I I think that all of us have to take it upon ourselves to find ways of bridging. And I think that's the only way to go through here. I don't think we should be holding one person on a pedestal. We have to all ask ourselves, almost as a criterion for for life or, or governance, how we can actually break down boundaries that otherwise may divide us. And so i I do think that this enters the economic sector this enters um you know religious spaces this enters community spaces you know and and of course households so i I think that we have to look broadly at this issue and consider it the greatest social challenge of our time Um, to give you a a, a, an analogy we have largely accepted climate change as one of these uh, such challenges and so as a result we have incorporated sustainability as a criterion for governance, for leadership, for management of organizations, right? You know, do you have to print this piece of paper? You know, how, are you, you know, how is what you're doing contributing uh, to climate change or mitigating its, its excesses? We ask ourselves these questions all the time. Why don't we ask ourselves, is what we're doing bringing people together or reinforcing the boundaries between them? Why don't we ask ourselves, are we cultivating greater social trust and trust in institutions, we're actually undercutting that trust that's so pivotal to social cohesion. I don't think we've actually begun to do that. And I think that's precisely the kind of leadership we need. And it starts at the, the most local of, of, of levels uh, before we even reach you know, more national
0: ambitions. I wish I could agree with your optimism. I think the, the environment example you bring up is actually a, a counter argument because we we all play it lip service, but no one's changing their lifestyle. I mean, while the global warming crisis is getting hotter and hotter. And and my sense is with this issue of majority minority in America is things have to get a lot worse before they get better. How much worse, Justin, do you think they could get if things don't go right, if if, if we don't do what you suggest we should do?
2: Look, there's a lot of warning signs on the horizon. And that's why I frame what I what I see in the United States as a crossroads. I you know, I, despite my optimism. I thought it was
0: a bridge, Justin. You used the metaphor of the bridge. You can't have bridges and crossroads. Sure, you can.
2: You can have a crossroads. One one of the roads in <laughs> the in the cross goes towards a bridge and the other one goes towards a bridge. The crosses bridge. the the crossroads. Okay, go on. You know, roads go roads turn into bridges all the time, you know. You know, you, you know, you live in San Francisco. There's bridges all the time that come and in, turn into roads. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, my optimism is mostly rooted in the fact that I don't think we've even tried very hard in the United States to address this. So that's where my optimism comes from. Uh, but certainly, there are warning signs. You've been like,
0: trying for three hundred years, Justin. I mean, Civil War, everything in this country has been an attempt, one way or the other, to do what you're trying to convince us we need to do, and it's always been a failure. I'm Sometimes not sure that, less I'm not dramatic sure that,
2: than others. There's been an enormous amount of adaptation. You know, you think about, you know, the reception of immigrants over the course of American history. Yeah. Um, it has not been particularly welcoming, you know. And we look ba- back through our history, you know, with rose-tinted lenses now, you know, as if the Irish were, you know, were, were welcomed with open arms rather than called public charges and criminals and the breeders of disease. You know, we, we talk about Italians, you know, as if they're an integral part to, of, of of the American world and, 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 and um, a variety of other of these white ethnic groups that came in and were so socially excluded, so discriminated against. Um, and so we've made a lot of adap- adaptations, but good, goodness, you know, the amount of time it takes uh, for people to change, it, it is glacial. You know? and, and so I don't think we can expect quick fixes here. And that's why I believe in this incrementalist approach uh and you know that's true i think for the metaphor that we were talking about earlier with climate change you know surely anyone would agree that we've made some progress on climate change in the last 20 years even if it's not necessarily having you know we're not at the full uh peak of our ambitions for for mitigating its excesses we are making somewhat of a difference and i think we have to be doing the same thing when it comes to our demographic politics
0: i'm not sure with some of my guests when it comes to global warming whether they would agree but anyway uh Justin Guest, your, your optimism is, um, in fact, uh, is, is, is encouraging, and I, and I hope uh, infects, if that's the right word, other people. Uh, your new book is just out, uh, Majori- uh, Majority, Minority, which both is a carrot and stick. It uses the models of Hawaii and New York to suggest that we can get it right, and it uses other examples like Singapore and Mauritius as a warning. Uh, What else should people be reading, uh, Justin, um, in uh, in late March 2022, in your view, in addition to your new book, Majority Minority?
2: Oh, there's a lot of good books on this subject matter. I can tell you what book I just recently cracked, uh, which is Streets of Gold, um, which is uh, by Buston and uh, Abramowitz. It's it's a it's a very interesting take on immigrants integration uh, over the course of U.S. history. Um, But, uh, you know. I, I think that, uh, we shouldn't just be reading. I think we should be engaging with people too. So I would encourage, uh, your listeners, uh, to go out and, and, and be those bridges that we've been talking about. You know, that's, the, that's really the way forward. How do you be a bridge? What does that mean? I think you reach out to people who are unconventionally your friends and peers. You know, I think that, you know, you actually seek out people's stories, uh, and you, and you shift into listening mode. You know, we talked about the, uh, the vulnerability olympics earlier listen to other people's stories and find commonality you know and and i think that's really how it works but also you know i don't think that bridging has to be so overt i think it can be covert you know i feel like i bridge when i play basketball or when i go to an art museum or I, when i go out for uh, you know different food and cuisines um you know these are ways of bridging across cultural boundaries um that are incredibly powerful without actually necessarily you know holding hands and you know meditating together
0: well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an optimistic view from Justin Guest, the author of Majority Minority. If everyone was like Justin, we wouldn't have the problem. Unfortunately, not everyone is Justin Guest, but it's great that we have a Justin Guest, and it's great that we uh, have his new book, Majority Minority, to think about these issues. Uh, Justin, finally, um, who's in charge these days in March 2022? Justin Guest, author of Majority Minority. Who runs the world? You know, increasingly, if you think about running things, I I think that and this is going
2: to be quite a pivot from our conversation here to 4 but I think about consistency and I think about a steady hand and I think about, you know, large, you know, mass scale forces. I think about scale. Um, And increasingly, I'm just recognizing just the power of bots and algorithms in our society, um, which are driving our markets, driving our politics. Um, because of their automated nature and scale, and I, I really think it's uh, it's problematic. Um, not not that we, you know, I'm like halting and you know trying to hit the brakes on progress on technological progress, um, but I also think that it challenges us to think independently and to maybe do what you and I just talked about: is not be a victim to it and maybe change things up. You know, reading something different, um, you know, watching something different. Uh, not to say that you know your loyal subscribers uh, should 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 leave, uh, but they should complement you know, what they listen to on a regular basis uh, with
0: visions and views from the other sides. We'll have to build some bridges on this show. Thank you so much, Justin. Excellent. Anytime.